0: Welcome back to Fish's Call Sheet, where we celebrate all the amazing talented people who make production possible. Today on this episode, we're going to dive into the world of music with
1: composer Randy Miller. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Happy to be here and happy to be sharing some time um, exploring stuff with you. Music is not my forte,
0: but it literally is the thing that sets the tone for pretty much everything we do great music kind of often is that thing that sets the tone that you don't even realize has started until you're kind of into it, I think.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And actually that's the heart of of what film music and media music is all about. Having people connect more with the images and the dialogue and the sound and it kind of becomes a cohesive universe of sound and music all to um, support the film or the TV show or the video. So let's do another version of this. My name is Randy Miller. I am from the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York. We just need to start off um, soft, which I think we are, but we need a little build. Once we get to 16, we can play out a little bit the rest of the way. Okay, let's go again. I've been composing music for a long time. I've worked on many, many different types of films and theater productions and live productions. And I've drawn elements from all of those and my childhood to a place where I combine all these different elements. One of the aspects of composing is the discovery period. And that's when you get a film, you get a project and you're working on it and you're trying different types of music, um, different styles, different combination of instruments or maybe electronic sounds. And one of the real joys is when you go, wow, that's what really works. When you have a small ensemble performing your, your music, could be just three or four players, you hear each individual player as compared to a 70, 80 piece group. But when you have just a few musicians, you're trying to bring out the individual qualities of each of these players and that brings something special to the music. Recently I did this with a small group of players that I hadn't met before and they were fantastic. They each added their own voice and sound to the music and I feel that that contributed to a very special sounding score music now has become a little bit more atmospheric and textural that thematic material is what really gives a score a distinctive sound. So what I'm trying to do is make a strong statement with a theme but surround that with uh, world elements, with synths, with electronic sounds, sometimes with a small group of musicians and sometimes with a much larger group, even an orchestra, but still maintaining a thematic element to all the different ingredients of what the film score is.
0: What do people think a composer does?
1: Well, there are a lot of different types of composers. There's composers of classical music, which everybody would know, like Tchaikovsky, and there's composers of songs, so songwriters, but they're still composers. There's composers of music for media, which is what I am. So we're writing music that's mostly in the background, of a media project, but sometimes becomes the foreground when there's say no dialogue or say a montage that features music. And composing doesn't necessarily mean writing it down. I happen to be that kind of composer that writes everything down, but you don't have to write anything down to be a composer. So it's a really broad uh, umbrella for what composing uh, really is. It changes
0: a little from film and television, obviously because of tone and the style. But what do you normally do, like when you come to a film project? How does that begin for you and what does that look like?
1: That's a great question too. So much um, depends on schedules. The ideal situation is when you have literally a year to write a score, that practically never happens. On occasion it, <laughs> on occasion it does. Occasionally I'm brought into a project when it's, it's in pre-production, it hasn't even been shot. Composers are normally paid a certain amount of money And it doesn't matter how short or how long of a time that we have to write the score. So the more time, the better. So the reason I'm bringing that up is because the flip side of having a year, which is, like I said, very rare, would be coming in to, say, replace someone else's score or because something happened and the the release schedule got condensed terribly. So you have two or three weeks or less to write the score. And everything's in between. But to answer your question, in the, in the average way would be a movie might have, you might have six weeks, maybe seven weeks to write the score. Could be anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes of music. TV show is different. As you know, the schedules of TV shows are very organized, very condensed. Episodes are, are happening um, uh, at the same time, concurrent at different stages. So a composer on a TV show is going to be working every week. And you might have you know, seven to 10 days or less to finish anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes of music. And to give you a sort of a, a reference, most composers write anywhere from one to maybe three or four minutes per day. If it's a big orchestral score, you're lucky if you can get through a minute or two a day. If it's something much smaller, like a synth score for a TV show, you could probably get through a couple minutes a day. So, that's how you get the, the sort of time. If you take the amount of minutes and you divide how much you can do per day, it can take anywhere from, you know, a week to a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah. And for people who don't really have a reference, like a half hour show usually is about 22 minutes of production time. So that's your, your
1: music could be
0: the majority of that episode or it could be across just a portion of that episode and probably the beginning and the end, especially.
1: That's so true. And especially in, in, in comedies, there's not a lot of music. There's play- on playoffs, opening credit end credits. say, a half an hour show, maybe 10 minutes of music, or, or less. So in a drama, say a TV epi- say, say a TV show that runs 45 minutes aside from commercials, or, you, know, approximately, there could be 30 minutes of music or more. That's a lot more than a half-hour sitcom, maybe which might be five or six minutes maybe 10 minutes most. Going even one step past that would be TV movies where um, I did a series of six uh, TV movies in 2008, and 18, where there were 90 minutes long TV movies and the producers of that show wanted wall to wall music. And anytime there was no music, you know, hey, you need some you put some music in this spot. So literally the, the 85 minute length movie had 85 minutes of music. There was no spots open. So they, they just wanted music wall to wall. It was the nature of uh, the type of production and the type of films that, that this company made. So that's like, you know, from a couple minutes in a sitcom to wall to wall music. Most composers, including myself, can write a few minutes a day at most and less if it's orchestral music for a feature film then you're lucky if you can get through one or two minutes a day. Having said all that, it all depends on schedules going back to what we first talked about. If you had months and months to work on something, then, you know, you're not worrying about how much you're getting done per day. You're worrying about the quality and you're trying to really make it the best you can and the most creative and the most, you're trying to stretch as a composer and that that's the ideal situation and the TV schedule, TV series or TV movies of the week type thing. um, You just have to get it done and, and, do it quickly and do it professionally and, um, you know, move, move on to the next episode or the next project.
0: For you, how does that process start? I, I imagine it's so unique because anybody who's dealt with music, they realize how long minutes of music are. But for you, wh- where does that process begin
1: and, and what are your big motivations? That's a complex, complex question, too. A lot of parts to it. So that goes back to kind of what I was saying about having a lot of time and and it ties into that because if you don't have a lot of time and you have to write really quickly. I mean honestly you have your um you have your ways of handling scenes. I mean and for myself I've done this for a long time. I haven't written for every type of scene there is there's always some new one which is exciting and different. And I actually started in the early 90s. So that's a long time ago where computers you know there were computers and we used computers then but not to the extent now. So back then when I first started, you had to imagine what the score would sound like as a composer in your head, or i 'm a piano so I can go over to the piano and, and and play what I want the orchestra to sound like and I say that because the you were asking about the composing process right so for me, um, back then, which is a carryover to now, is the way I still do things i If I have time, I come up with the main thematic motifs or themes of whatever, whatever uh, uh, the genre is. And sometimes it's actually not just themes, it could be just chord progressions or rhythms or uh, textural sounds. When I have a choice and I have you know the luxury, I experiment for really a week or so, or, or even more, just coming up with themes on the piano or really away from the picture. I look at the picture, get some inspiration, I look at the notes, especially the director notes, like what this director, he or she wants the music to do for the film. That is very inspirational. It gets your mind kind of uh, thinking about what the score should be. Kind of one other big sort of hovering um, element to this, and that's something called temp scores, which is short for temporary scores. And almost all filmmakers put in music as the as the editor is editing the scenes together, the editor is uh, adding music. And I'm going to tie this into the process in a second. But when there's music added, you're, the composer, I'm hearing this music that the filmmakers like. So that's suggestive of what I should write for music. Um, so that is also going to influence the early um, stages of composition. On occasion, like the film I'm just finishing up now, which we'll talk about at some point, I'm sure, there was no temporary score, no temp score, which is ideal it's great because then you can your imagination can do anything you want um it's risky because you don't know what the filmmakers want right because there's no suggestion of it, there's no music in there so all those things factor into um how i start writing and then i want to also tie that into what i said about my vintage being in this business a long time right so back when I first started, we didn't have all the really complex synthesizer electronic gear that we have now in my studio is filled with this stuff. And I can instantly just play any sound I want from any part of the world. And I can hear it and I can realize it in, you know, 10 minutes, I can come up with something that sounds kind of like what the score is going to be, or the scene is going to be. When I started out, we didn't have that. We had just piano and a few basic synthesizers practically no internet Um, so you had to do a little more um, imaginative stuff worked I don't mean the music's more imaginative than music now I just meant you couldn't realize it as quickly so you had to imagine in your mind if you play a piano and you really want to hear strings it's still just piano unless you can make your thoughts sound feel like that would be the string part so now, the way I write is depending on the schedule and depending on if there's a temp score, what kind of score. and um, But I try to write all the thematic, textural, rhythmic, motivic material before I actually start writing particular scenes. When I finally get to the point where I'm writing particular scenes, I, practic- I rarely start at the beginning of the movie. I take other areas or a TV show that aren't as demanding as the main title or the end title and kind of experiment, you know, kind of in, in the internal parts of the, uh, of the movie. And that, that's really um, the first couple of weeks of, of that early process.
0: I was curious when you're doing these projects, what are the ones that stick out the most to you? Things that have music that, that you just are so proud of. And then even if there's projects, like I know for me, there's a few projects I wish I could go back and get a second shot at just because I think I've grown and I'd like to do some things different.
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I love these questions, um, and they make me think about everything that I've done, the projects, and 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 I'm and I, saying this from the heart, the project that the projects that I've done, that have meant the most are the documentaries that I feel like, can help, the planet a little bit, even in its my own small way as a, as a composer. Hands down, those are the ones that, and and, the, the, and actually they're not necessarily. Um, Documentaries are also films that have a message that something, those particular ones rarely are the highest paying ones or the ones that pay my bills and whatnot, but those are the ones that that mean the most to me. And I'm fortunate to have done some um, and quite a few. Two years ago, I worked on a uh, documentary called The Heart of Nuba. And that was really interesting. That was all about the Nuba people in South Sudan. And this is when there was uh, genocide going on there. And it still is, but, but it's much better. It's, it's, it actually has stopped actually, partly, um, partly because of this film. This film was um, about one doctor who was treating close to a million people. There was very few doctors in that area of the world. To be part of something like that and contribute to and make an awareness of what was happening there was, such a good feeling. It made an impact, and it actually got to um, uh, to the point where uh, the government was overthrown in Sudan. And that that happened about a year ago, and uh, hopefully it'll turn into a democracy, but we'll, we'll see. Those kind of projects where you feel like you made a difference um, really means something. And, and going back uh, even more, a few years before, I worked on a film called Extinction Soup, which was all about the sharks and, and the sharks are being decimated. Their fins are being cut off. And so that was a documentary as well. Those kind of projects you feel like you're you're helping. Um, freedom to marry, which was another one, which was bringing attention to same-sex marriage, which was also had an impact. As far as feature films, a film I worked on many 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 years ago uh, with recording with a Japanese recording artist named Katara, who did a lot of. Um, a uh, new age music, for, uh, he's Japanese. We worked on an uh, Oliver Stone film called Heaven and Earth. And that brought attention to, um, that was Oliver's kind of third film about the Vietnam experience. And that kind of brought attention to the actual people living in Vietnam. So that also put out a message. So those kind of projects have a lasting uh, impact on my life. And I feel like I'm contributing. You know, us us in the entertainment business, we're not teachers at, high schools and um, doctors in emergency rooms. So when we can help out this planet to make it a slightly better place, that feels really good. As far as um, type of music that helped me expand as a composer, like the heart of Nuber, so that was all uh, African music and I used African musicians. I worked on a film years ago called Time Over Time, um, which was based off a Norman Mailer uh, novel which was all jazz. And I love jazz and I grew up playing jazz. So it was a chance to kind of do a 1960s John Coltrane-ish type of score. And as a film composer, you get to do a lot of different, a lot of variety of things. So that was really a lot of fun. And really just about every film that I, I work on where I have enough time and I can experiment, then I feel like I am expanding and reaching and, and, and pulling in new influences. Now, things I'd like to do better uh, is just about every score. There's, you know, every time I hear something that I've done, I go back and I think, oh, you know, that cue's pretty good. But that one, the next one, I could have done better on that. So there, there's never ending sort of wish they could go back and tweak and do it better. And a lot of that has to do with the time, like we were talking about before. If you don't have enough time, you can't really do your very, very best work. You do good work, can't, but it's not your very, very best.
0: What brought you to music? What started that passion for you?
1: I grew up in the Catskills up in upstate New York. There was a lot of music. At that time, there was bungalow colonies and hotels, and there was music in every one of them. My mother was a professional vocalist uh, before she moved from New York City and married my, my, my dad uh, up in this little mountain town up in up in uh, the Catskills called ellenville new york she was a professional vocalist and traveled everywhere and sang and so there was always music in in our house uh, she would bring in pianists to rehearse in the living room for and she even when she was raising her family um myself and my two brothers uh she would bring in professional musicians to uh rehearse the shows that she was doing in the local hotel she was done with touring so it was just Doing the uh, different gigs in different hotels, so it's always around that. And um, I would watch the pianist accompany her, accompany her uh, singing. And even though I didn't start off accompanying uh, vocalists, I was in rock bands and a jazz band in the high school band playing clarinet. I was around this stuff all the time. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Didn't take too long. By the time I was in my late teens, I was already accompanying her on some of her shows as a pianist, and she was doing mostly. Um, Broadway stuff, some some semi-legit, which is sort of like a, some operetta-type material, but mostly Broadway, mostly Broadway and popular songs. And so I was learning how to accompany her as a vocalist in my late teens and early 20s. That really informed um, so much about um, my future uh, musicianship. But one single event that... <laughs> my mom took me down to Broadway and we saw The King and I, and it was the second revival. It was in the early seventies, I think. And Yul Brynner starred in it. And I remember sitting up close at the stage and I could see the pit orchestra playing this King and I, which is one of my favorite all time scores, Roger and Hammerstein. And I was listening to the orchestra and I, and I just was, that's what I want to do. I want to orchestrate and write for musicals. But it was really more about orchestration for the musicals. I didn't really want to write the songs. He became a favorite of mine, R- Robert Russell Bennett, who's passed away a long time ago, but he was the orchestrator and uh, uh, sort of a right-hand man to Rod- Richard Rogers for many, many years. That was a seminal moment for me where I thought, wow. That, that is a lot different than some of the rock bands and some of the jazz things I was doing in high school. So that, this is this Broadway production with this beautiful orchestra playing this beautiful, beautiful uh, music. And to this day, I still think about that moment. And I, and I actually, I, he, he, Robert uh, Russell Bennett wrote a book um, about uh, music for theater. And I remember studying it in college at Berkeley um, in, in Boston and the book disappeared, I could never find it. I finally found it on you know, like eBay or Amazon or something two or three years ago and I bought it, it's on my shelf. It was a couple hundred dollars, literally a couple <laughs> hundred dollars, When I snapped it up right away because it reminded me of that moment watching um, The King and I in the uh, early 70s. Isn't it amazing
0: how a moment, right, you, you kind of know in a moment, like you'll, your life changes, it's the life before that moment, And then when you kind of have that epiphany of of what your passion is.
1: It's so true. It's so true. And I think about that moment, but really what happened at that moment was I was still also really interested in biology. Yeah. And and I went my first semester to college as a biology major because I was torn. I love the outdoors and I still do. And I still have this attachment to the outdoors and biology and all these things. Um, so I went for one semester as a biology major. That deep feeling of wanting to be a musician was too strong. And so I left and, and went to a different school and entered as a music major. Even, like you said, at that moment, that's really what I wanted to do. But I wasn't 100% sure. I wasn't 100% sure. Well, it's not practical, right? Like, I, I was going to be a
0: veterinarian. I love biology and I love animals. So you're, you're speaking my language. <laughs> but I grew up in this business and I've, yeah. always, I've loved acting from the beginning. But I also loved the behind the scenes portion of, the reason I write and direct and produce is exactly what you said about like being able to do a documentary that may make an impact on society, yeah. where you can touch people, where you can progress a thought or share a story that hasn't really been told. It's everything.
1: Can you just put those words into my mouth when I speak those, that was way better put than, <laughs> that's exactly, really well put, that's exactly how I feel. And you and you probably have, I mean, not that I'm going to interview you, but I want to ask you a few things. Sure. You still have that feeling about animals and veterinary and, and the outdoors and and, and all, I'm sure it's still deep inside you.
0: Every day and I love it and I, I have lots of pets and I spend lots of time outdoors and I made my kids animal lovers. There's a part of me that knows that I could have done that and I would have enjoyed it. And so I've been around veterinary medicine my whole life as well, but I realized that this pushes me in a way and brings me to life in a way that that probably could have done in, in a lesser sense. But I don't know if it could have ever matched this.
1: That's so true. And I feel the same way. I feel like I could have gone through life as a biologist, maybe a field biologist, maybe a researcher. I don't know. Who knows? But um, and I could have been happy and I could have done it, taken that road. Maybe I would have had regrets a lot about music. Maybe, maybe not. I and mean, There's no way to know. But I love that. I can have sort of my cake and eat it too, because I'm a composer and I work in music every day, which I absolutely love, even even when I'm complaining about schedules and and sometimes getting paid very little um, and all the things that we complain about. But yet I'm going to just look up. I can look up and I see we live in Altapanga. There's nothing but open space. I mean, I see bobcats, I see deer, I see rabbits, I see everything every day. And I, and I just love it, I love hiking, I love being outside. So I, I, that's why I say I can have my sort of cake and kind of eat it too, which is, is really well, nice.
0: I laugh because I think there's something about biology for me, and I think Kip, who I mentioned before, who had mentioned your name to me, was a biology major once upon a time. And a couple other people I've interviewed have been biology majors. And I think there's something about the connection, people drawn to biology, I think are drawn to the connection and the way things work and interact as like a system and a whole. Yeah. And then I, I, I'm in this moment thinking, well, music is very much like that. And production is like that. It's all of these individual pieces that all have to come together in a synergy in kind of a homeostasis, so to speak, to make something stand above and make things balance and work.
1: Yeah, no, that's so true. that That, that is so true. And there's that that collabor- collaborative spirit that you're talking about is is in both fields. And, and I myself am um, very much a collaborative person, whether it would be, you know, in music or if I was, you know, in some other field of science. It's, it's definitely a collab- collaborative uh, effort. Having said that, on the other hand, a little different than what, what you do. You're, you know, you're an actor, a director, a producer, a filmmaker, right? Yeah, a so writer. Dan Ryder so you're with a lot of people a lot of time I mean maybe not in the last year given you know zoom and the pandemic but but you know you've been on set since you were little and um, composers are much different in that way because we're we're this is our this is my box here and I spend all my time and I love this box like I said I have views of the entire open Topanga you know vista here and um but yet it's I'm in this space all the time unless I'm going to the studio to record an orchestra, other people's smaller studios for a few musicians. But, you know, 90% of the time I'm here uh, just working quietly. So that's a little different, even though the collaborative spirit spirit is still there. I must be part of the team, like you mentioned, the filmmaking team that needs to work together. I'm not actually in the presence of a lot of people. Not that I'm a hermit. (laughs) I'm not a hermit. So but feel but like the a, nature of what you do kind of lends it. Because like I, I always tell people when
0: I'm editing, because I was an editor for a while. There you go. You lock me in a dark room and I don't come out until I'm done pretty much. It's like and, and it's not that I don't like people, but it's funny. It's like I have to get it to a point where other people can fully see all of the work and the progress of what we're doing. And then I get the notes and have to go back in the cave.
1: Right. And that that, that is a perfect example of what composers – the, the process that, that we go through. I mean, and, and I like that too. I mean, I love people. I'm, I'm friendly. I'm, I'm easy to get along with, but I also and like to be quiet and, 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 and this field and the work that I do gives me plenty of time to be quiet. And, and as you say, you just, you just kind of disappear and do your work and come out and get your notes and, and, and carry on to whatever's next.
0: How did you find your way into this business? You start out you're writing music, and you talked about writing for like musicals and stage. What brought you to Hollywood to this crazy business
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it was my path right, and everybody's path is so so different. It is interesting. When I finished um, college, halfway through college i was I was doing a lot of musicals, all right This is college level, but I was also working professionally in the local theaters as a keyboard player uh, while I was in college, this is in Boston. But in my last semester, or actually it was the last year, I think at Berkeley, they started a film music program. It really didn't exist before that, but at that time it just started up. And so I'm going to take some classes in film music, although I wasn't that interested in it. I mean, I loved, you know, some scores. I remember when I was a kid from TV and whatnot, but, um, but I did take those film music classes and then I really liked it. I went, wait a second, this, Maybe more important to to me than even theater, even though I, I I love theater, I just felt like there was more opportunities in media music, meaning at that time it was film or, or TV there was no uh, you know, no internet and anything right. and no, uh, no video games or anything. but so that got me interested in film music and when I graduated i didn 't feel ready to go out to uh, Los Angeles and I had family and my family uh, had a place in Florida there were snowbirds, like typically many Northeasterners, they, they're in there and especially when they get older and they start to retire, they have a place in the North and, 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 and luckily my family, um, was able to get an apartment, a condo in South Florida. I went down there really after, um, right after I graduated, I mean, right after the, the next week to spend time with my family. And I got work right away as a pianist and, and, um, really as a pianist uh, more than anything else. In South Florida, there was a lot of music, still is a lot of music happening at all the hotels and whatnot. And I said, okay, this sounds pretty good. So I started working there and, but pretty soon within a year, I really wanted to get back to writing because I was working mostly as a, as a pianist and composing. So I started um, getting as much work as I could as a composer, which mostly meant uh, some commercials, but then I started doing a lot of work as a string arranger, meaning I was writing string arrangements for, for records and songs and whatnot. And I started doing quite a bit of that. And uh, that led me to get an offer to come out to Los Angeles by a producer. A producer came in from Los Angeles, a record producer, and uh, wanted me to write string arrangements for, for the vocalist, which I did, and conducted them in, in South Florida uh, called Criteria, which is the famous BG studio there at the time. And that same producer brought me out to Los Angeles to finish the project. It was really exciting. I'd never been past the Mississippi. (laughs) I had toured in different rock bands and different things up up to about Ohio, but I'd never been all the way out to to, uh, California. She brought me out to California, and and I met a lot of uh, uh, great studio musicians here. I was arranging and conducting the strings in one of the studios in Los Angeles. And so that kind of made the connection to Los Angeles. Then I went back, I finished the project and I went back to uh, Florida. And then I saw a, uh, an ad in the Musicians Union paper for a program at USC, was called Advanced Studies in Film Scoring. It just, it was the first year, it, they just started it. And it was, a, it was a graduate level program in film scoring with a, a unbelievable talent uh, in terms of the faculty, like Alexander Courage, was my composition teacher who, who wrote the theme from Star Trek, the TV movie, the really famous one that everybody knows. And so he was one of the teachers. And so, you know, I love that kind of stuff. So I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And it was very hard to get into it, but I did get accepted into it. So I was proud of that. Got in my Honda Civic and just drove out to California, left everything behind in Florida. Didn't know anybody except for the studio musicians and um, took that, did that program. That brought me out to Los Angeles. and I did have some contacts with the with the players I mentioned the studio players that I knew matter of fact one of them uh, was so gracious to let me stay at his house for a few weeks in Woodland Hills and that was just to get me acclimated until I got my own place when I went to school it was the late 80s like 88 around um, when I actually moved out here I got an offer to be a courier just dry I mean there was there was that's how you got music from one place to the next you couldn't you know you couldn't just send it over the internet and print it. So couriers are used all the time to, to take music from a composer's house to the sound stage and then back to the copyist, you know, kind of move it all around. So I met um, a French horn player. She hired me to, she was also a copyist, music copyist, the people that write the music for the actual individual musicians. And she sent me out to a composer's house in uh, Malibu, When I went to his house, you know, beautiful house right on the ocean, I was like, wow, this is quite the lifestyle. This is, you know, I'm living in a little apartment in Hollywood. And I was so impressed with it. And he said, you know something, Um, my assistant composer, I had to let him go. And I just let him go a few days ago. I'm looking for somebody else. That was the first day I started working on his courier job. He said, I understand you're a composer. I said, yeah. He goes, okay, go home to your apartment and write some music and send it to me which I did. He hired me a few days later. So I only worked, yeah, I only worked one day on that job. (laughs) Right place, right time, right? Most effective courier ever. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, that was so timely. It was great. It was such a, such a cool thing. And and, um, he hired me to start um, working for him on all his films. I worked for him, I don't know, from around 88 till um, around 90 or 91. All kinds of films writing uh, orchestra pieces writing small pieces writing and some of these some of these were a list films and I had ended up getting. um, Demo tapes, which was everything for a composer you needed to prove what you sound like and so because I was writing for another composer and working for another composer that ha- was working on big budget films, my demo tape sounded really good for someone just starting out It's had full orchestras playing these pieces. It was a different time period because now people can make demo reels in their home, right? But in
0: those days, to have access to musicians and to have an orchestra because it's the only way
1: to get the full sound. God, like, that's, that's so, so interesting you brought that up. It's so true what you just said. That is such a good point because... That was what made you have something that another composer did, a young composer didn't have, was having that wonderful studio orchestra-sized, A-list level sounding demo tape. Yeah, and and what a unique thing. I mean, I, I remember, you know, we
0: started ironically pretty close at the same time. Obviously, I, I was young, I was a kid, I was <laughs> just kind of finding my way. But we're all kind of finding our way in the beginning, anyway. Yeah, because I started in '88. That time period you really had to kind of fight to make it or be in the right places and put the pieces together. It lent itself to the people who were still around really have a substantial kind of grasp of the business. Cause they watched the shift from kind of, I don't want to say from, from kind of pre-digital
1: to yeah. digital and modern. It's so true. I mean, that's so true and in, in, in the composing world back then there was, I mean, I really wasn't a, a, a a composer that anybody knew. I mean, I just was starting out. But having said that, there was probably, I don't know, maybe three or four hundred really busy composers in Los Angeles, and that was it. And there was only you know X amount of TV shows, um, X amount of movies per year. Showtime and HBO were just kind of getting going. So there really wasn't a lot of work, and I was able to squeeze my way in doing some small films and small TV shows. Just starting out, as compared to now. Um, when someone young composers come to me all the time and ask for advice. And it's just what you just said. It's, it's now it's so different because there's probably thousands and thousands of working composers instead of a couple hundred. And there's, but, but the ratio is probably the same. So back then there was a couple hundred and maybe, you know, a thousand jobs, whatever. Now there's, you know, thousands of composers, but five, times that amount of different projects because of every cable show every internet show every youtube show everything everything there's so much work just very just very different times but in some ways you still have to make yourself distinctive then you know and now what are projects that jump out at you where or something that you
0: just are hungry to try something you haven't got to do enough of In my career, I've
1: done a little bit of of everything. Well, I only did um, one, that one score, the one jazz score, which is called Time Over Time, but I would really love to do more of that. So even though, you know, I I have done one, it was, you know, it was a lot of fun doing it. I'd like to do more. It's something that goes back to my uh, upbringing and my, when I was very young and it's something close to my heart. So Randy, a lot of, composers, a lot of musicians early on in their
0: career and, and at times throughout their career end up ghostwriting. What can you say about that for, for musicians and for people? Because so often we hear people's work and we don't fully know who to accredit to in this business. And same thing for writing.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. It's the same thing with writing. And it goes way back, way back into, into the, the 30s and the 40s when, when, when uh, studios had, um, you know, back then, all the major studios had orchestras on staff every day. that that was, That's been gone since the early 60s. And they also had composers on staff. And the composers on staff were oftentimes the head of the studios. Major names. Underneath those composers were a slew of, you know, just, I don't know, could have been five to ten, I would imagine, composers that were working under the main composer. And they didn't get credit. And brilliant. Brilliant people. Brilliant. These true artists. I mean,
0: people who made world-changing music but they weren't the main name
1: so true so true and perhaps more talented than the than the credited composer you know, that's a subjective discussion um and so that tradition continued and it continued up to now and was how i got started um working under other composers ghostwriting music that term is not used you know you have to be careful with that term you don't want to uh divulge uh, who you wrote for if you're not credited with the music then you you have to uh well, take responsibility yeah responsibility.
0: you end up you don't because i've done the same thing on the writing side right so you don't get credit and you can't really take credit because part of the agreement when you started was that you were working essentially under this person and that you're by the nature of ghost writing ghost composing You're acknowledging that you're going to contribute, but that you don't take the credit because then it becomes a conflict over whose work is it and all of these things. And that's part of the agreement in the beginning. And you sign NDAs and all of these things. So it can be very hard sometimes for people to acknowledge or get the credit that in many cases they do deserve as an artist. But from a
1: business standpoint, that's just the way it was set up. That's so true. And again, better put than I could have ever said, but it's exa- exactly like that. And, and if you make the agreement, you need to honor that agreement. And I've always honored that agreement. And I have made those agreements. And to this day I'm making, I've honored those agreements. Um, there are composers that I know that did not honor that agreement. And then after the fact, went out and told the world, and usually it doesn't go well for them when they do that, because that's not part of the agreement. Having said that, there is a, probably a better way, which also happens as often as, as the ghostwriting, where you are writing for another composer and you do get credit. In that way, you're, it's not ghostwriting, it's just additional music and that's the credit that you would get additional writer or what would it be in the writing world? Um, well, in the writing world, usually you get a lower title. I mean, it depends on if
0: um, someone else might be the, the executive or the creator at this point because of producers and things like that from a writing standpoint, but you might get story by and they they're the writer of the episode or the writer of the film or, or you get a contribution and that's the hard part. I think part of it is it's the dynamics of any business. And I think people, not just in our business, but everywhere can relate to, some people share credit. Some people want sole credit uh, for, for lots of different reasons. And there are people who agree to share credit or, or sole credit, and then people come back later and try to kind of usurp it or do something yeah. else. And what usually happens is you get one job that way, but you kind of announce to the whole world that you're not going to honor these things. And once you you don't have that integrity that follows you as well for your career. So,
1: and that's what i was talking about right it doesn't yeah. usually go well and, and no that's and that's that's well put and and it's the same thing yeah so the the other way would be just to get additional music credit if you're on a project and the additional composing credit um can be for many different reasons it could be that the other composer is simply too busy and hey hey buddy come on and help me i need to get this project done sure i'll do a couple of cues i'll do you know, 20 minutes of music to help you get it done. It could be that the particular composer um, doesn't have the skills to write a certain type of music that needs somebody else to, I mean, including myself, I I can't write everything at a certain level. A lot of things I can write really well, certain things I can't. And so I might bring somebody in to help me write some additional music. And it happens all the time for me too. But what I've learned is over the years is to try to give additional music credit as much as i can and i do it as much as i can and i do it most of the time to other composers on occasion because of contractual um obligations in the contract that i have with the production company i really can't get into that it has to just be strictly somebody doing some ghostwriting. i haven't used ghostwriters that much or additional music composers that much but i've done it a lot for other people it's just it's just the nature of my my career over the years has been I have a main road as a composer, but I also have two other main roads. And one of them is, as an orchestrator, which is a whole different thing. And also as a conductor, which is a whole different thing too. And then the other one says so really four main streams is as an arranger, string arranger. Because of all the experience I have, not only with as a composer, but as an orchestrator, conductor and string arranger, I get called on a lot of projects, even to today, to do additional music and to help out other composers because I have a lot of experience. And that's really interesting because a couple of years ago, um, I was thinking, you know, I'm getting older. I'm not getting some of the calls that I want to get because this is the nature of this business. As you get older, younger people come in. And then all of a sudden, I started getting so many calls. This is about two or three years, so many calls, two or three years, not only my own projects, but from other composers to do work. And I've been insanely busy the last couple of years, and I'm just so grateful for it. And I think it's because of everything we're talking about and and that I'm talking about these different sort of parts of my career that has kind of helped me now um, as someone um, who's a bit older and that's like a whole nother discussion, which I don't even mind having because it's, it's, you're not there. You're, you're just young guy, but, but, but for us older people in the industry, it is a really, it's a big problem. It is. Ageism is a big deal in our, in our business in particular because of, especially with the changing technologies,
0: yeah. people assume they need somebody younger, they need someone new. You earn yourself to a certain level. And a lot of times people want to find the newest you know person that they can kind of, I don't want to say undercut, but they can hire for almost nothing that, that doesn't know the rules or, or what's been built over the years. Yeah. And so ageism is a big thing in our business. And I, I've been uniquely aware of it growing up as a kid because I watched you know, the people I started with are now kind of being pushed out of the
1: business. Oh, that, yeah, that's because there's a big gap in age between when you... Right, and the other people. And so for me, what it's done for me is it's given me a beautiful, um,
0: complete perspective that I wouldn't have had because as I kind of... you know I like to think I'm coming into my prime in the next yeah, few years. You are. It's also made me uniquely aware of respecting the people who have been here because of their knowledge and their skill and valuing their experience and not participating in that and, and hoping to be a place where we can have what I want to have is productions that really are varied by age is I want the experienced people teaching the new people so the new people can start at a higher level.
1: Yeah, that's so I love that that kind of thinking that you're doing because truthfully you'll be there in 20 years from now you'll be in that, those same shoes and if you can put that out in, in the world uh and you're not doing it for yourself obviously you're doing it for the older ones that you're speaking about but it'll help your generation too when you get to the next step part of my thoughts is is uh because I've been lucky uh and I'm still really busy as I say and I'm not just saying it to like make it look like I'm busy.
0: I truly I, am busy. i say it, you're, you're super busy. Your name came up a ton when I was looking for people. That's why you're the first composer that I, I reached out to. And I was so humbled by you being willing to do this is because you've worked in pretty much everything. And in a world where streaming is relatively new for, for you and I, because we've been in this so long, but when you're looking at people who have done television and, and comedy and drama then they've done film, they've done small films, they've done short films, they've done documentaries, they've done dramas, they've done comedy, you've done, you know, pretty much every category you could possibly click in and, you know, streaming and everything else. It's a beautiful thing to see someone who has that combination of experience where you've touched it all.
1: Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I I feel the same way. And I have to sometimes you know, pinch myself in and, and also be grateful, not be jealous of somebody else who gets another this and another project. And why didn't I get it? You know, all the stuff we all go through, the jealousies and the and the anger and all the stuff. I go through that too. But, um, but I truly am um, at this point, really happy to be doing the work I'm doing. And right now I'm working on a film, a really big video game, arranging strings for a, a recording artist. And I'm working on a musical, not as a composer, but as a producer, orchestrator, conductor. And I'm saying all those things because, you know, just like in your field, in my field, there are, you know, there are A-list uh, composers. But there's not a list. There's not a long, long list. There's the Hans Zimmers and John Williams and these great composers as they are. Uh, and there's a handful but there's still a lot of work for a lot of other composers, and I haven't reached those heights in terms of uh, uh, the most visible films as the primary composer. Although I've worked on those films in different capacities, um, but there's something to a lot of behind-the-scenes people. I'm not going to say so much you because you've been in front of the camera a lot too. But but maybe you, when you put your hat on as a uh, you know as a writer or something, uh, th- that you don't have to to sustain a really successful, personally successful and rewarding career, you don't have to be, you know, that A-list person, the biggest movie star or the biggest name composer and still have a a, a very varied and far-reaching career. And I say that because I try to explain to younger composers that really just want to do the biggest films, that's not the only way. Yeah, maybe you'll get to be that person that works on the next, Marvel, you know, is the next Marvel superhero uh, composer, but maybe not. One way, if you want to have a long, sustained career, is to get really experienced and really good at many things so that people call on you as you get older. Now, that's not to say that, you know, there's another the flip side to that is, well, if you, if you do too many different things, you're not an expert in anything. Well, there is something to that, I suppose, but um, I- at least in my field, it doesn't really apply. People love for you to fit in a niche and they love to
0: know that you do X. Yeah. So in the beginning, it can be difficult for them to understand that you can do, you know, B and P and Q and all these other things. Right. But if you're good at them, you'll show people your ability. And then, like you said, you have four or more real avenues. And so depending on what's going on or or what the opportunity is, I think it also for me and, and probably for you too, as a creative person, it gives you a a release and a way to explore different parts of you, so nothing ever gets boring, right? You never feel
1: like this is the only thing I do. That's so true, and that that the perfect example of that is. Um, it's probably fine for me to say this. I'm working on a movie now called Love and Country, which is a beautiful movie. I mean, it's it's it celebrates the uh, LGBT um, sort of experience in Viet, in the Vietnam War. <laughs> All right, everyone on good. soldiers um, two men they fall in love and it's like the horrors of Vietnam uh, tied into this sort of deranged um, captain who wants them to um, go on this suicidal mission basically and yet they have this love affair between two of them and they need to survive they need to they're thinking about their future You couldn't say you were gay in the Vietnam, uh, yeah. you could never become an officer. There was a lot of you know uh, problems uh, uh, then and, and now too. But, um, and I'll mention this project because it's very low budget. It didn't pay me much um, and I really couldn't care less. It was completely fine because I feel like it's one of those projects that will go out into the world and and make it a better place. Um, And I spent um, about five months on this score, which is a really long time, going back to that first discussion. And there was no temp score, which is great. The filmmakers were very open to me experimenting. And um, so that, project lasted for months. Now, luckily, you know, I've, I've been able to save money and, and I'm fine financially and I get my residuals as, as you do too. Um, but I really needed to make some money also because it's part of this business. You want to be rewarded for your talents. So I took a few other projects right when that ended. Just like you just said, it wasn't that I was tired of <laughs> composing the music, I was happy to, but I also wanted to make a project where I was paid Right. nice and handsomely for my experience and my ability. And I'm able to jump around. I'm working with uh, Michael Franti right now, who's a recording artist. Um, he, he's very well known. And I'm doing a string arrangement on his, uh, probably more than one, but one, at least one right now on his new record. I'm working on that musical I mentioned. So it's, it's a nice, real variety of, of opportunities at this moment. Okay, Randy, after being in this business for so long, For young composers or people
0: who come into this business, who wanted a piece of advice, what's the thing that you tell people
1: in the beginning? And then what's what's the thing you wish people knew? This is why I think I got working quickly because back then without computers and and all these sort of things, you really had to be a skilled, sort of a trained musician. You didn't have to be, but it helped to be a trained musician who could write things out on paper and know how to conduct an orchestra and understand all the orchestral instruments. And also understood the pop music of that time, which I did very much because I'd played bands and all that stuff. So I understood a lot of what was needed in the late 80s and 90s to get going. I was at the right place at the right time because of my skill set. Jump forward to now, that's much less important. You don't need to necessarily, necessarily be a trained, you know, conservatory trained musician, composer to get work. And so what I tell younger people is exactly that. I say, if you want to go to Juilliard or Berkeley or USC or any of the music schools, that's great. Do it. But you don't have to, because of all the technology, you might stand a better chance or an equal chance getting great on your technology. Understand all the computer tech stuff, understand how to run samplers, understand how to, um, uh, how to mix music as a recording engineer, all the, behind the sort of the secondary work skills that a composer needs, but doesn't have time. So a composer to come in and work the best way. Now I tell you young to put it in a nutshell is to work for another composer, join Hans Zimmer's team, if you can, or many other composers. And in fact, for myself, I brought in plenty of young composers who've then gone off and done had really good careers themselves. They've worked for me as, as an engineer, as a tech person, Somebody knows how to handle the samplers and electronic music, all this kind of stuff that I don't have time to do. I know how to do that as well. But when you're really busy, you can't do everything yourself. It's a team effort um, in composing. So that's my answer to a young person. In a nutshell, get your tech together. Get your tech because there's a lot of opportunity in that area. If that's not your thing, then come in very trained as an orchestrator or a conductor or possibly a, uh, a player. So if you have a really high-end uh, skill set as a pianist or as a guitar player, but I'm talking about studio-level quality, so it has to be very high, you might get some work for another composer playing for them as a, as a player, and then you'll get opportunities to do some writing. So it's changed. So back, you know, from way back then to now because of technology, mostly.
0: What do you think your colleagues say is your best quality?
1: At this level, my level and your level, we're all really good at what we do. I mean, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing unless we're really good at it. I mean, so I don't want to qualify great versus really good, but let's just put the bar at really good. So we're all really good. We're not hacks. You know, we're not people that shouldn't be here. And yet we're here. We're here for a reason and we're, we've stayed on for a reason because we know what we're doing. We do good work or very good work. So I think for me, given that, um, and I'm nobody to qualify my own, you know, exceptional ism or very good ism or excellent ism, whatever it is. But what I will say is I'm, 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 I'm very, uh, I think I'm a great collaborator. I'm easy to get along with. People like working with me. Honest, um, respectful. I'm creative, all these things. But I think the thing that stands out for me is, is being collaborative. And and I say that because in my long career, I think other colleagues would, would, would think of me. I hope anyway, is the collaboration. Okay. I have my final
0: round of questions. Some of them will be a little different because you don't spend as much time on set because there's like call sheet and there's, um, there's questions about craft service, but over the years, I'm sure you've been there, so I'm going to ask you them um, anyway. Just give me whatever answer is yeah. to your mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is
0: the first thing you look for on a call sheet?
1: Well, we don't have call sheets as composers, but it's it, it, our, the equivalent of that would be um, either submit a demo for a film or if, if I immediately get hired without a demo, which, which both ways happen. Somebody wants you, they call you, and you have to decide if you want to take the the, the job at all. I am DB Pro right there. I look for who's on the film and do I know them? Are they doing other projects? You know, uh, uh, uh is it somebody that has a reputation of somebody I want to work for? Obviously I know something about the film at that point because I got a call about it, but I may not know the principals involved and post-production people involved and below the lines people involved. So that's what I look for because there is, as you said, there is no call sheet. There is something that comes out when, um, When I work as a uh, studio musician, when I'm conducting orchestras in town here, uh, there is a a union call and then you see all the musicians. So I look at that to see who's on it, but I'm just happy to see names I know, which is always nice. Right now, on those sheets, what's the one thing you don't want to see? This applies here and other countries. I've conducted uh, orchestras really all over Europe. and, and. Russia and different places so I've been different places as a conductor and I know some of the musicians in these different countries in the different orchestras and as well here in town sometimes there's players that I don't dislike as people but I, I'm not crazy about their playing for different reasons and I have to decide if I want to replace that person or not and that's really hard to do and rarely do I do it? But there has been an occasion when I've seen a name and i went, no, that's the wrong person for this. T-. So I hate doing that because that person is losing work right. because of my feelings about their playing. I'm just hoping that I made a, a smart decision. But like I said, that rare, rarely happens.
0: I think people don't realize how much a conductor has to has to really understand not just the music, not just the rhythm, but the individual strengths and the way people collaborate, going back to collaboration as a whole, because what you're really doing is, you're not playing a song, you're playing everyone's talents together and and touching on people's abilities and lifting them.
1: Yeah, no, it's so true. And and I would say, just to give kudos to LA, that's never happened, now I'm thinking about it. I can't, at least I can't recall a time where I saw a name on uh, a Los Angeles union call where I didn't love every musician. They're so spectacular. They are the best in the world. There's nobody like, they're so good, so well-rounded, so versatile, play with so emotion, so much emotion. Um, That has happened um, uh, in other places where I I, I wasn't happy with certain musicians. I didn't want to see them again for that reason. When you walk into that room as the
0: conductor, like, what's that process like for a production? It's not just the music, but it's it's selecting people's skills and talents to highlight and, and really
1: heighten the moments. The composer and orchestrator or conductor doesn't usually hire the musicians. There's a music contractor who hires the musicians, but they look to us for input. So they'll say, hey, how do you think about this person, this person? Well, if you have, you know, a 60-piece violin, a 60-piece string section, and there's you know, 26 violins, 25 of them are going to, you're not even going to think about because it's a large group, but you might think about the first two, the principal, the concert master, and maybe the the assistant uh, principal, uh, the second chair. And you will think about styles, about those people, or the, say the principal cellist or the principal horn player, French horn players. And you may want a certain type of player depending on the music. And if it's uh, a big action film, you want somebody that can handle that kind of a sound, say as a French horn player, your lead French horn player. If it's a a tender, dramatic piece and you have violin solos, you might want something, somebody who you know can do that really well as compared to a 20th century contemporary uh, uh, compositional piece that deals with experimental and sort of extended techniques in string writing, which would be like classical music of the mid mid 1950s, um, You might want somebody specific for that. But to to go to what you said about, this is not uh, concert music like at, you know, at Disney Concert Hall or at any of the great uh, concert halls across the world. This is film music. So these musicians coming in are incredibly skilled. So as a conductor, they don't need help to play the parts. They don't need to be told, come in at this beat, you're playing the rhythm drum, they're spectacular. Really the main Uh, work that the conductor is doing is helping bridge the composer and the filmmakers that are in the control room to make sure that the orchestra is expressing the right emotion for the particular scene. So that's what the conductor is really doing is really making sure that the music sounds and is portraying the emotion that the filmmakers want and that the composer wrote. But really about balance, who should be louder, who should be softer, who should play with more espressivo, more more expression, who should play with less so that you're not over-dramatizing um, the way the music sounds. So it's just kind of um, sort of a shaping and sort of color-making of the orchestra. And also the other big thing is just time because... These orchestras are very expensive. The studios are very expensive. You need to get done a certain amount of uh, music in a certain amount of time. So the conductor is the one that really kind of keeps things moving, keeps things kind of getting done properly on time. And and you know, budget is incredibly important. It has to get done within budget. So this is specific to what we're building and what we're shaping for this
0: project. How does it fit together? And does that talent uplift the talent that you're going to see on the screen?
1: So true. If, if, As we went way back to the beginning of our discussion, music is there to, and as you said, sometimes the audience doesn't even know that music is there. So the music is there to support the images, support the dialogue, support anything that has to do with media, whether it's a video game or, or a TV show or movie. So that really comes together, um, especially in an orchestral session where as compared to a uh, electronic or synth score that you're writing you know in your studio and slowly building it up and making it exactly how you want it after weeks of working on these individual parts when you have an orchestra it's happening in real time and you know twenty minutes later that piece of music that was three minutes long is recorded and it 's done I mean it has to be mixed, but it's done, so it has to be shaped right right on the spot as compared to slowly building it up in your in your work studio at home. Whether it be on set
0: or maybe at at a a studio, what is your favorite thing to see at craft service? What's your favorite kind of thing to keep you going?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, What I really like to see in craft services, which I do see, which is so nice is great fruit. The fruit is so nice and it's so refreshing. It's, you know, I have to talk quite a bit um, as a conductor and express to musicians and the director and all that. So to have something like fruit um, soothing, you know, it's wet in your throat. What's the one thing you don't want to see? Coffee could be a little bit better. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, I don't drink a lot of coffee. I'm drinking coffee right now because I like to have it just to, as I'm speaking to kind of, you know, soothe my throat a little bit. But but I do have like a cup of coffee a day, sometimes two. Since it's special for me and I don't drink a real lot, I like to have really nice coffee. And if I don't see that at craft services, I'm lucky enough to be in... Conducting, they'll go out and get me ones from somewhere special. So that's nice. Randy, how do you define success? That goes back to what I first talked about. I've worked on a, such a different variety of projects, and that's why I feel like I've had success. The most successful ones are the ones that I feel like I'm contributing. And I know I've said that a couple of times, but it's so true. I look back and I go, Yeah. And I go, Other projects by far i 've made much more money, and so that 's success too you you know this financial success, but it 's not as important I mean, maybe maybe that 's unfair to say if i if i wasn 't you know if I was struggling financially right now maybe i wouldn 't say that i 'd be so I have to always be cognizant and appreciative of the fact that i've i 'm secure uh, financially because not many people are not so I think for me, the success is um, being able to write music for projects that have some impact, however small my contribution to the project is. How
0: everybody defines success is different, and I think you touched on a really important thing, because I normally ask people, how are you doing based on your definition? But as you said, you're doing very well on your definition, because for you, it's become about doing projects that have meaning. You have to take the jobs that pay a certain amount, or you have to do a certain number of kind of the more commercial jobs, But nobody stays in this business as long as you've been in it or as long as I've been in it because it's solely about business or paycheck because there are other things you could do that are far more consistent.
1: That's so true.
0: And you wouldn't have to chase because, I mean, in our field and for you in particular, you get short windows of time to make music, which is a high-pressure, high-movement kind of job. But then also you move on and you have to go get the next one.
1: Yeah. No, it's so true. And there's been plenty of times where I haven't had any work. I mean, there was time, like I was mentioning those six TV movies, prior to those six TV movies, it was September. I remember very specifically September. I had no work. I had no work in September, October, November, December. No, (laughs) September, October. It was like four or five months. And I sent out emails. I went to IMDb. I went to everywhere I could, And I looked, 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 looked. I had my agent looking, looking, just nothing. And then an old friend who was a songwriter from somebody I knew for 30 years uh, called me up who was writing songs for um, those TV movies and asked me if I wanted to compose one of them. One movie went to five more immediately after. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that because if you had asked me if we were having this interview right now, 2018 or 17, whatever it was. I would go, well, you know, I don't know. I'm not being very <laughs> successful. Things are just falling all apart. And, you know, that, you know it's, it's that. that's the way it is. I mean, you get really busy and then there's nothing, and then you get really busy. I've had a nice stretch right now, but that's not to say that in June, when I'm finishing up the things I'm on now, I may not work for six months. Who knows? I don't know. Oh, I know. I, and I, <laughs> I was on a production I didn't work from uh, October
0: to January, and no one told me that that was going to be the case. Right in our business, that's forever, and you yeah. start the the little voice inside you starts to freak out. I've had two of those in the last two years, but each time I've been writing and working on other stuff. And it's funny because after that stretch, you get a big stretch like you said, where all of a sudden you're doing a bunch of things, and then all that the little personal stuff I was doing in that time, essentially off that I didn't want, but that I Was forced to take, it led to something else or empowered something I did next.
1: Yeah, no, it's so true. And and every one of those hundreds of leads I sent out went nowhere. But that doesn't mean that they won't circle back around. You know, in a year or so, for now, maybe somebody'll call, um, you know, or email. Hey, remember you sent me that email? Well, I have something now for you. So at the time, it felt wasted, which is interesting, and I'm sure you go through it too. Is downtime so? You know, what do you do during your downtime? Well, you know, that's a whole sort of another thing. Um, I want to do a shout out before, I I don't know if we're finishing up soon, but in case we, in case I forget, my manager from Bohemia Group, Peter Hackman, has been such a wonderful guy. He, he, He actually got me that film, Love and Country. He found it and called me up and asked me if I wanted to do it. Okay, what's the one thing you want in any set or recording studio? Assuming the musicians, obviously the musicians have to be great. That would be the number one that show up in the space. But the second thing is the actual space itself. And as you can imagine, if you take uh, 50 musicians and you put them in uh, a large sterile room, meaning a room with just small ceilings and, and hard walls where the sound ricochets as compared to this wonderful 200 year old church with, 30 foot ceilings and, and, and big wide open spaces, music's going to just vibrate wonderfully in that old converted church. So the first thing I look for is the sound of the room, assuming the musicians are are all good. I don't really care about how it looks. I don't care how fancy it is. And, And that and studios build themselves up to look really beautiful and to impress people, but it's what they sound like. So I'll go in and just snap my fingers and clap my hands to hear the sound and to hear the reverb, the reverberation of what I do, how it goes into the room. And you learn a lot that way. By far, it's the sound of the room is the most important, not the look, not uh, equipment has to be good, obviously kept up to record. uh, That would be it, it's the sound. I'm interested because that's not my area of
0: expertise, right? So you talk about reverberation, you talk about coming in and making sound, you talked about hard flat walls which i know and a short ceiling because then the sound bounces around
1: yeah. what's
0: something else that when you walk in you you just go oh man like like what's the thing you don't want to see in a room
1: well let me say something that you do want to see and then i'll because it'll trigger something i don't want to see well i did some stu- recording at uh, air studios air Lyndhurst, which is in london <clears throat> Beatles recorded uh, so much there you know the first thing you see on the wall are, are all these um amazing arrangements, uh, string arrangements and band arrangements that the Beatles use. So you're going, wow, there's this history. You know, there's the piano that John Lennon or or Paul McCartney used to play a particular solo. So those are all wonderful to see um, because there's a history and I don't know, I feel like there's built-in vibes that sort of are into the walls and into the fabric from all these great musicians and great songs and great orchestras that have played there. I think there's something that I wouldn't want to see the ownership or the management, not caring much about your project, just looking at it as money. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you do see that on, on occasion. And it just, you know, it's just like, well, you know, it doesn't create a great vibe. you don't see that often though. I got to say, you don't see that often. I have seen it. Uh, but most of the time, most, the vast majority of the time, they're very welcoming to you coming in and bringing your project in there but but not always not always we are making art right like it can be very formal and very business oriented
0: but at the end of the day there's a magic to kind of what happens and music in particular has a resonance and that resonance I think carries over space and time yeah and and to really enjoy that I think you can feel when people are passionate about what they're doing you can really feel the desire so if it becomes a business thing it kind of it just kind of short changes that Portion of the passion.
1: Yes, no, that's so true. Uh, it, it's so true. And, and when studio owners uh, and the management come in and actually listen to what you're doing, it's just such a great feeling. That's usually what happens it, it, because they're, they, they're happy to have this, like you said, these vibes and this energy coming into their studio, into their space, becoming part of that fabric that, like you say, does go over time. Um, to go on what you're saying, when we were, uh, I was on a project that was recording at Air Studios, which um, Sir, George, Sir George Martin owned the studio, and he produced almost all the Beatles records. Um, you know, to walk in and see his string arrangement of yesterday, which was one of the classics in terms of string arrangements, on the wall, created such a nice vibe. It was so great, and uh, unfortunately passed just a few years ago, but on this particular project, my, uh, my wife was with me, Pamela, super friendly and, and a great personality and, and a beautiful person over, overall. And she saw Sir George going outside. She ran out and said, no, you got to come in and please come in and say hello to everybody. He came into the studio, watched us recording um, this orchestra at Air Studios and um, just stayed for the longest time. Talked with me so long. And this is somebody who, He was a giant, you know, in the pop field world. And so that, having somebody like that come in and appreciate what we were doing, wanting to be part and put his stamp of approval on the project in his studio, you know, it was like so so great. Beautiful. Yeah, really nice. For people who want to do sound or music or things in their home,
0: people who are like like coming out of a pandemic where most people have been stuck at home, right? If you wanted to start doing some stuff at home, what are the soundproofing, the little things that you think make a huge difference for people that they may not think of or the space they should choose?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. That's such a great question because it turns out that we are, we are hopefully exiting the pandemic. But a year ago when we were, it was really bad, I mean, I was working on these projects that needed to get recorded. I was on a couple of projects that had to get musicians recorded. I was calling up the musicians I knew and a few of them had already started doing what we call remote recording. They recognized that people were doing that anyway before the pandemic. It's just the way things were getting done. Musicians were working in their home studio spaces for projects that didn't need to go to a big studio. So these lucky few who had already started it got incredibly busy during the pandemic. And others who, who hadn't done that uh, realized they needed to get into it. Not only for the pandemic, to work during the pandemic, but that's the way things are done now, just. So what I noticed working with a variety, and I've worked with a vocalist of all kinds and in the last year, and musicians of all kinds, most of the players and the vocalists uh, are working in sort of like a, a living room space. And that's very much uh, dependent on the size of the living room and what's in the living room. So my suggestion would be two things is you don't need, it doesn't cost that much to get really good equipment. 20 years ago, that equipment would have been literally $20,000 for a good pro tool system. You can get now for maybe two or $3,000, mostly it's computer-based, but you need a great mic. So spend, so you can get the computer pretty easy and the software needs to spend money on a really good microphone to help out, that the space that you have may not be ideal. If you have that great mic close up to your voice or the French horn or the trumpet, whatever it is, help out with the lack of having a great studio space. So I think there's two things, the space and also the technology. Get get the technology together. Do the best you can with the space that you can by buying technology to accommodate that space.
0: What is the best thing you've gotten from working on a project?
1: The first thing that popped into my mind was... um, the Heart of Nuba, and the uh, director, Ken Carlson, who's a good friend and, and somebody I've done uh, several documentaries with. Super brave. Man, I wouldn't have done what he did. He went he went to uh, uh, South Sudan and filmed all the stuff. And I mean, literally, people were dying in front of him. It was horrible. Bombs were dropping, and somehow he got all this footage out. And then when I heard that uh, Bashir's government, who was the dictator of... Um, of sudan crumbled about a year year and a half ago ken's film played a big part in it because bashir knew about ken's film and wanted that copy and wanted it destroyed and couldn't get it i mean this it sounds like a spy novel the stuff that uh, ken would have told me but it was all true when i heard that that government fell and that this film had something to do with it at least that's the most recent one that that um But to be honest, almost every project, I mean, this sounds kind of corny, but each project has its own special little gift because um, this project I'm on now, Love and Country, if it makes a difference and brings to light some of the LGBT issues going on now and in the Vietnam War, especially then, that will be my new gift. Um, When I work with Michael Franti, I've worked with Michael for 20 years on at least six or seven of his records. Michael's songs have such strong uh, social impact uh, messages. Each time I work on one of his songs as a string arranger in that instance, as compared to as a composer on the prior two, I feel like I get a little gift because I helped get his message out to the world. So it shifts all over the place. Sometimes it's as simple as getting to travel, uh, you know, and and record something like I was talking about at Air Studios and get to meet George Martin. So there's there's constant little gifts. All the time.
0: Each project brings its own gift, like you said. Gratitude is a big thing. And you use the word, right? You're so grateful for it. And then, you know, people who love what they do, we're just like, let's
1: just keep going, right? Let's just, what's the next one, right?
0: What's the next experience? Okay, Randy, how do you want the people who work with you to remember you?
1: I would like them to sit down, even if they weren't directly involved with the music. What I mean to say is maybe they were the DP, or the editor, the editor is involved with the music, but but the film is edited by the time the composer composer gets the gets the score. So I mean, I know the director listens to every bit of music. That's obvious, and the producer, some of it, or most of it, or all of it. But I would like all my collaborators to sit down and have a chance to really listen to the music on its own or with the picture, but really focus in on it and and, and appreciate um, what I did. And and you act and you put your work out there, or when you write a script, in my case when I'm writing music, you're really putting yourself out there, because somebody can just say that that's shit, I I don't like it. And and so you have to put yourself out there uh, and bury yourself emotionally and and, and artistically. I would like people to, um, any of my collaborators, to really listen to what I did to see how I put myself out there on an emotional sort of artistic uh, level. So that's one thing. And the other thing, which I think is, only, is equal to it, and I touched on it earlier, is that um, they'll remember me as somebody who was um, uh, someone they wanted to spend time with because kind of like a marriage with a composer and a director for a couple of months. I mean, it's very intense. You're constantly in touch with them and or the producer. Uh, who you work with every day, whether it's over Zoom or in person or whatever it is. So you'd want them to feel like they had a, uh, an inspiring and uh, successful uh, collaboration with, with me. I'd like them to feel that way. Yeah, I,
0: I totally resonate with the desire to have the people you work with remember how much you laid bare and went all in for the project, because to me, I really respect the people I work with and collaborate, even the people who may not even be on set at the time or the people who are seemingly far removed because we are all connected in this essence and our names live together forever. And I I really take a value in that. And it's part of the reason I wanna do this show is to highlight how many different people bring their amazing talents together so people will take that moment. And like in your case, maybe step away from the visual and just close your eyes, take in all the music, take in the way it makes you feel and how it accents what you did on a visual level or on a technical level and all of those other things. You're committed from the beginning to the end and you took every essence and every note had a purpose to you.
1: That's so well put. And I wanna say to kind of jump off what you just said, most people don't understand that, not really even sure what it's like For you professionally, it may be different, but for a composer and and for myself and I think most composers, when we get hired on a project, it's seven days a week, 10 hours, 12 hours a day. And I know you know what I mean when you put your editor hat on, for sure. But there's no weekends off. There's no days off. There's no Christmas. There's no nothing off. You're you're just 100% committed to it. And that's the way it is. And I suppose the flip side of it is then you have four weeks off or six weeks or six months or whatever. Nobody knows, but it's a hundred percent. And, and, and uh, for folks that don't understand that, um, that is the commitment. I might complain about it to my wife or my, my kids or something, but I, I love it. I mean, I love sitting here, you know, I love sitting down here and at my, my workspace and writing music, I, even though I might complain about the schedule or about this, about that. It would, gives me my identity and myself awareness of who I am. And um, yeah, it, it, it is central to what I think of myself and what I hope other collaborators think about me as a dedication and integrity that I believe I bring to. I'm not talking about talent, that's somebody else to decide, but I do bring the integrity and, and the commitment to any, any project that I work on.
0: Well, I think that's so important. And it kind of brings me to my last question, which is what is it the legacy that you want your loved ones to take from your life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been really fortunate again to live where I live, which I'm looking outside because I just love it. I mean, I, maybe I should turn the camera around just so you can see it's <laughs> just open space, it's really nice. And this space that I'm in, we built uh, when my wife and I, Pamela and I uh, bought this house 25 years ago, it, it was minus three big spaces. And so we built these rooms. so this is my space that I live in. I'm, I live in, I work in and live in practically and the two other rooms are big recording rooms where I can put musicians in and Todd, Going back to your question, we built those rooms so I would not have to open up a, a studio somewhere else. It's a personal decision. I wanted to work at home because we decided to have a family and we had, uh, we have two kids um, and I was able to be home all through all that time, not have to go to a separate studio to to work, which is nothing wrong with that. It's just a personal decision. Lots of good reasons to go to a studio and and open up a studio uh, there as well. But in my case, because I could be at home and be part of my family, even though I was busy, that I want them to um, remember that. And they do, they had musicians come, just like I did when I was a kid, when I was talking about my mother and bringing pianists into rehearsal. I had great musicians here all through their childhood, violinists and clarinet players and French horn players and singers and drummers. And they heard all this stuff all the time. And they're both excellent musicians. Uh, They didn't go into the music field, but they're both excelled at music. Um, And so I would want them to remember all that, all that music that happened in this household. And also, I think I want them to remember the dedication and integrity that I did put into my work. So as they go into their fields, they're both in their early twenties, they're both just starting to branch out. They'll remember that for whatever careers that they end up doing that, how, you know, dad used to work really hard in there and he put time and he got up early and he did his work and all that kind of thing. And for my wife, um, Pamela, but she's been integral, uh, so important in in, in my life because she she used to be in the business herself, in the industry. She understands all the business uh, inside and out. She's helped me all along the way, making contacts, helping me um, maintain my career. And she's gone on some fun trips with me overseas in different places. So I hope that the kids, in particular, remember all those things the dedication the trips, the joy that I had in my career. But also see the 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 down the bad times too when I'm frustrated and I'm not happy and I didn't get paid enough or someone else got a job because you know you can't paint it as just all rosy. You need to have both. So they're seeing both in. So hopefully they'll see the realism of of what my career has been like as well.
0: I think it's a beautiful legacy. I purposely I had kids really early. I took a step back and I wanted to make sure I was heavily involved. And you did this beautiful thing. And I think it's a beautiful legacy of saying, this is my career. This is what I want. This is what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it mostly at home. Because at times it's easier to have a studio and go someplace else yeah. because you have a separate space and you don't have to worry about what, what's going on with the kids or what a family thing or something else coming in and interrupting. You can have a dedicated space and and, yeah. and you can work 24 hours if you need to. And in our business, every once in a while, you kind of almost do, right? So
1: true.
0: So to have this dedication to home and family that we're going to do it here and we're going to come together as a family, but that you're going to see, really, they got to see you build your legacy and they got to be a part of it and know that they were central in your plan and what was important. I think it's a beautiful thing.
1: Have, yeah, thank you.
0: Much, And I have kids pretty close to the same age. And so it's, it's as mine are going out into the world. It's the same thing is I want mine to see that dad always chases dreams, that it wasn't easy, that, that there were lots of hiccups and how we navigated that. And I hope that they'll forgive me on the days that I was too stressful or that I didn't handle it my best. But I think overall, what they saw is, somebody was committed and loved what they did and chased their dream and continued to find a way and that they were always central. So that totally resonates with me.
1: Yeah, no. And, and I'm sure this will resonate with you too, because they're at my kids are at, they're at their age that they are. They may not. I mean, right now they're for good reason, concentrating on their own lives and I want them to be, but, but later on uh, when they're a bit older and, and, and successful, which I'm sure there will be, they'll think back more. And, and like you said, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll understand whatever times weren't that easy when I was harsh and, and couldn't do anything, but get back to work and had to, and, uh, uh, and understand, um, uh, you know, both sides of it, both sides of it, just, just as you just said it. Um, one other thing that, that, that ties into that is it ties into the biology that we first talked about when I moved here. To Los Angeles, um, I came from the East Coast as I mentioned upstate New York, the casco mounds all green and whatnot and pretty so I always wanted to um, have a place to go that was like that so we ended up buying some land up in the Sequoia uh, mountains up in the Sequoia National Forest and we built a cottage up there um, in 2005 um, so that's been a place that I set up a little studio there that we don't use it as much now, um, but when the kids were young, we'd go up there all the time and i do some work up there and, and, uh, and provided them with like, even though it was still around music and my work up there, it gave them a feeling of simplicity, getting away from, there was no internet. We had no, we put internet in there last year, finally. After 15 years, we finally put an internet in. There was none of that. It was just detached from everything. Uh, we did have electricity and we did have bathrooms, but <laughs> but um so they got a so i hope they remember the legacy of that as well as is trying to balance everything here in the old topanga calabasas area versus the simplicity of the old school type of thing up in a little cottage up in the sequoia mountains where we still have music
0: i love it Randy, thank you so much for coming on Fish's Call Sheet, for taking people behind what it means to be a composer, for giving us really a full perspective of of a job that's so important. And I hope people will stop and listen to some of their favorite projects and realize the impact the music makes. And then look and see who did it.
1: Yeah, Michael, thank you so much for for involving me and uh, bringing me in and um giving me a chance to help people understand what being a composer is all about. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Fish's Call
0: Sheet. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. We have a lot of other episodes where we cover a lot of different categories in our entertainment industry, but I'm so happy to celebrate all the people who make production possible. If you'd like more, or if you'd like to see some of the video with some of the visuals, you can always check us out at any of our social medias at Fish's Call Sheet or check us out on YouTube,